Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the second July 2015 podcast. We had kind of a little mix up with my questions, and I realized that I had answered some questions back in April that I then answered once again in July. So I apologize for that. And we vetted out the problem within our podcast question selection. And we are going to answer seven questions on this podcast to kind of fill out the monthly podcast to what I promise is around an hour each month. The other thing I wanted to kind of mention to all of you is I really want to stress that the inner circle is very important for community and for you to give as much as I am giving. You see a lot of this on the Inner Circle Facebook page, which is awesome. The other thing of giving as much as I give, I really need your questions. I'm trying to answer as many as I can within the Inner Circle on all the different posts and articles that we do, but we really need to keep the podcast questions cracking so we can continue to share and with each other, as well as I can share uh, my knowledge to all of you on all of these subjects. Let's start with number one. And we have a younger member who has a wonderful question. Hey, Shane, one of your younger members here. I'm still in high school and likely going to film school. Because my goal is to become a cinematographer, what are some paths that you may suggest to get to that point? Going from PA to grip to gaffer to DP, or maybe something completely different? I know that going in any direction can lead to the same place, but I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. Thanks, Shane. I thought I'd address one of our younger members. We have a lot of high school students within the inner circle, and it's very exciting to me because I am on the East Coast right now on vacation with my family, and we are touring different schools. And my daughter, Kira, wants to be an actress, and she's also interested in production. A lot of the schools were traveling to 
New York and we're looking at NYU and Columbia. We were just up in Boston and we looked at uh, Boston University and Emerson College. She was just in Los Angeles where we live. She went to UCLA and Chapman. So each one of these schools, I've been looking at their curriculum and seeing what they give, what their laser focus is, how wide their spectrum or how really tight the spectrum of learning is. I can kind of give you a little update on what I've experienced. Film school is definitely something you want to go to. Not only does film school give you a great base, talking brick and mortar, building your foundation as as a filmmaker, but also it gives you responsibility. You have to manage your money and your parents are not there just with their checkbook and their credit card and their wallet and meeting people and living with different people that you never thought you would be put together with and working out different personalities and the friendships that you create in college are incredibly important. These are some of the foundation, the brick and mortar of the film school, any school's experience. I went to Emerson College, so you can say this is kind of biased, but going to all the schools once again and seeing their curriculum and this type of learning and how they learn, Emerson College blew every single university that we toured out of the water. It was unbelievable. And I think what it really goes down to is Emerson understands the creative mind more than every other university that we were in. It was crazy. Because most of the curriculums that Kira and I saw, you took two years of liberal arts and then you started to get into what you really want to do. Emerson doesn't believe in that. Emerson thinks you should get into what you really think you want to do within the first day you walk into the college or university. And that is a great way to learn. And it's a great way for the creative mind to learn because creatives, taking me for an example, I'm all over the place. When I went to Emerson, I went there as a journalism major. Within six months, changed to a mass communication major in television. And within another six months, changed my major to film. All within six months, each time period. That's what Emerson is all about. They understand the creative mind. They understand that you're going to be figuring it all out. So Kira wants to go for acting. Hopefully she gets in or wherever she wants to go. Who knows? She might not go to Emerson. But let's take that as an example. Kira's going to go to Emerson. She goes, she auditions, 870 some odd people audition for only 130 slots in the acting program. So she's going to audition, say she gets accepted. Day one, she's taking a little liberal arts and she's taking a ton of theater and acting courses. Immediately, she's going to see if this is right for her, if she has what it takes, if this is what she loves. She's going to know that immediately. I knew it within the first three months in journalism. I was like, okay, I do not want to eat, breathe, sleep journalism. I don't want to. And that's what you have to do. That was a big wake-up call for me. And then I moved to television. And I was like, you know what? This broadcast television thing and all this stuff, I don't know. I'm just not into it. And then I moved to film. So it was a very kind of all over progression. And even when I finished the film degree at Emerson, I didn't even want to be a, a cinematographer. 
I thought I was going to be a producer. Only after when I then got out into the, the real world and working on sets and everything that I start to find my voice, my soul of who I was going to be. Now, that was Emerson of the 80s. We're talking Emerson of the 2015 is much more of a laser focus. And it really will give you the ability to understand what you want to be and who you want to be. And it might not exactly be what you thought. And that's the beauty of getting this stuff put in front of your face and you experiencing this right off the bat. So you can then make your choice and not waste a four-year degree on something that you just spent two years learning liberal arts. And now you finally get to what you thought you loved and you don't love it. And now you have to stay another two years to try and figure out what you really want to do. So that was a very eye-opening experience for me on seeing all these tours. Now, the progression from going from a PA to a grip to a gaffer, there's many ways to go up the ladder to becoming a cinematographer. First off, I think you should definitely, whatever school you're going into, you want to make sure that they teach still photography. Taking that one still image is so important to understanding emotion, composition, style, lighting, all these things before you eventually crank that camera to spinning 24 still frames per second. It's very important that you first learn this so you can really get to the heart of the artistry of being a cinematographer. But once you get out of film school and you want to be a cinematographer. That's what you love. You went to school, you did the cinematography program, and you absolutely ate it up. And now you want to become a cinematographer. And what is the clearest path? There's several paths, like a Panavision school where you can go and be trained at Panavision and you can, you get into their two year program and you get taught all the ins and outs of all the different camera systems. And then after two years, it is pretty much guaranteed that you are going to be working with some big gun director of photographies because you will have befriended all of their first and second assistants and they'll get you in as a digital loader to start. Then you'll immediately start to climb up the ladder if this is your direction. And that's usually digital loader, then going to a second AC, then going to a first AC, then going to an operator. Then you can usually move to a director of photography or a second unit director of photography, and then to a director of photography. That's been the main path that you see most director of photography is use. Another path is the path that I chose, which was on the technical, more the lighting side. I started out as a grip, then as a dolly grip, then as a key grip, then as a gaffer, then as a director of photography. That way was much more heavy on the lighting side. I hired many wonderful assistants to help me understand the camera and educate me on everything that was about camera. Now I find myself educating most of my camera assistants with the latest technology because I am on that bleeding edge of understanding the cameras and have to understand every nuance and idiosyncrasy of them to be able to create in this world. The art and science spectrum of cinematography and filmmaking has definitely evened out 
Uh, so much of the science is required to really take your creativity and push it over the limit. If you don't want to involve yourself in science whatsoever, you just want to say, okay, I'm just going to use this camera to be able to bring my art to the big screen. That is absolutely a way you can go. Absolutely. But if by understanding the science, you're able to take your art higher, that's, I think, the win-win. That's where I find myself playing in that kind of wheelhouse because I feel that is uh, what really inspires me is like really understanding the tools and what those tools and the science of it all to then take the art even higher. Maybe I'm getting distracted here. Back to uh, the question of our young member here, just getting the thoughts of the PA route. If you haven't been on set a lot, you can go the PA route to at least get you know, your grounding and uh, an onset experience and understand the lingo and the language and the pace and all the different players. I would suggest the PA route to do that as a camera PA. And I think that's very essential. And I've hired so many camera PAs to do this and they eventually are, have been on my team and my God, some of them are my uh, first assistants. So them starting out as a camera PA is a very, very good way to get and move up the ladder. I'd have to say that being a quote unquote, just a production assistant, more on the production side is good to do, but I wouldn't do it for a long time. It's something that you want to dabble in to just get your groundings, like I said before, and then get the hell out of that and move into where you really want to aspire to be, which is a cinematographer. I hope I've answered that question as best I could. On to the next question. Shane, you might think I'm crazy, but I was watching an old Indiana Jones movie the other day, and it looked almost like the actors were shot on green screen. I know they weren't, of course, but there's something about the look of those movies. Is it the film that they're using, the broad depth of field, or maybe it's just a masterful separation of subject and background using lighting and contrast, or maybe it's even just something in how the movies have been remastered in recent years. Well, you nailed it on almost every one of the spectrums of this question with what you think was the answer. Was it the film that they're using? Not so much. Was it the broad depth of field? Absolutely. Indiana Jones was shot by this cinematographer that his claim to fame was shooting most of everything he did at a wide, wide range of depth of field. So he keyed most of the things an 8 to a 16. So he could hold stuff with these lenses very close in the foreground, and you'd have tons of depth of field in the background. And what happens with the remastering process, because film and, let's say, not high def, but just standard def television, just softened that out. And it didn't look so crisp and so hyper real. But now with these things all being remastered at an HD, now that deep depth of field really looks like they are on green screen. I've seen that movie remastered and it definitely has that feel. I love that movie to death. I saw it so many times as a kid. It was a 
massive Indiana Jones fan, but I have to say that the way they're doing things now, the standard def just really kind of softened and rounded a lot of this stuff out. And now with this really broad depth of field, and he's uh, attaining that by just going with a very, very deep f-stop. There's a couple good articles about this, I think in the uh, American Cinematographer, on the last Indiana Jones, because Janusz Kaminski shot the last Indiana Jones with Steven Spielberg, and he wanted to duplicate the look of that cinematographer, which I thought, my personal uh, opinion, was an absolute fail. It made all of the sets look very fake and very kind of Hollywood 1930s, 40s-esque in their fakeness. I thought that was an epic fail in every way, shape, and form. I think if you're going to do an Indiana Jones reinvention or even if it's the last one, I'm more about not continuing the franchise of how it was lensed, but actually going a complete different opposite direction, which I think would have been wonderful for a rebirth of that franchise. But whatever. I'm not the filmmaker on that, and I'm not Steven Spielberg, and he's obviously been very successful in his instincts, as well as Janusz Kaminski. I love them all to death. I think Kaminski is by far within the top five cinematographers in the world. Bridges of Spies is a masterpiece, and Spielberg, I think, is going to knock it out of the park with this one again. There's all times in life. I mean, I've done several films that I call a pretty much all fail. It's part of the learning process. You you pick a script, you think it's going to be good, then all of a sudden the actor takes it in a different direction, the director takes it in an even different direction, and all of a sudden you look on and you're like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? But these are things that happen sometimes. Yes, I think you were right on the money with everything that you mentioned, and the broad depth of field is something that I am not a fan of. I know that when I took on Into the Badlands, the director, David Dopkin, had mentioned that he likes shooting most of his movies that he's done at a four, five, six split. And I said nothing when I heard that. Badlands, we didn't shoot over a T2. There's a unique look to what a T2 does. A T2 does many things. The most important thing I think it does is it brings your focus directly to the character and who he is addressing, which is the audience. And he's emotionally connecting with all of you or him or her. I love the shallow depth of field. I don't like to go extreme with a one four because I feel that you can't keep the nose and the eyes in focus. And that's kind of distracting to me. So I'm more of a T2, T2 and a half kind of guy. Sometimes I'll go up to a two eight, two eight and a half, depending on what the action is, just to keep things in focus. So it's not so shallow with things, but that's kind of the range that I like to live in. I'm not a big uh, broad depth of field kind of guy. Moving on to the next question. Hey Shane, as many of us have grown up in the digital age, I have yet to shoot on any film formats. I've been very interested in shooting on film, but have been nervous about the process. I was wondering if you can recommend any places that have some consolidated information about all the aspects of shooting on film, such as loading, pushing, pulling, choosing different perfs, DI, telecine, etc. Thank you, Matt. 
Before we get to any of the pushing, pulling, choosing different perfs, DI, telecine, let's just go to the core of starting with exposing film and what is the best way to kind of learn that. And I think it gets back to exactly how I learned in college. You start with a Bolex. The Bolex is probably the easiest teaches you about under and overexposure. It teaches you about grain. It teaches you about lenses. And loading is very easy because it's kind of a cassette style. You don't have to physically load the film within it. You literally just pop a roll of film in the Bolex and it just starts exposing. You have three lenses on that turret. So you can use a wide lens, a medium lens, and a tight lens all at your disposal. This is how I made my first films in film school. I shot a lot of black and white to understand composition and not getting weirded out by the color and everything. I just wanted to discover composition and I wanted to discover light and darkness. The shadow, the light and shadow was so important learning black and white. So my first suggestion to you is just to go out and buy a Bolex. They are so cheap. And you can find the film all over the place. And you can get it developed at still a couple places. Photochem in Los Angeles is still developing 16 millimeter Bolex. And I know there's some micro labs around the country that are still processing and developing 16 millimeter film. This would be my suggestion to you. And you want to kind of fail. I mean, there's obviously books on exposing film, but there's a little meter inside there. And when the meter's in the center, you got a decent exposure. And this is how I learned. It really teaches you just from a very, very simple perspective. I felt I learned more this way than reading a ton of books and confusing myself with everything. I wanted to learn by touching and feeling and failing first and then see what my fail is. See what four stops of me having the wrong exposure on and overexposing it and, and what happened there or what happened when I didn't expose it properly. Or with black and white, you can use red and yellow and green filters and what that does. And then I move to color film stock and how that would feel and how that would overexpose and stuff. So I would say that is the best way to learn. It's one way I did. And it really gave me a, a much appreciation of film, its power, and its wonderful creative nature of just running around and, and knowing that you only have two minutes to tell your story on that one roll of film. It's not like you can endlessly roll your camcorder or your DSLR and just shoot, 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 shoot. This is something that you have to be very focused on. You have to have a shot list. You have to have a plan of attack. One of our first things that we learned in film school, which it was actually my favorite course out of every film course that I took at Emerson, Film 101 was my favorite. And it's because it gave you a Bolex. And it gave you one roll of black and white film. And you had to edit in the camera. What that does is it immediately starts you to hone your skills, understanding like an editor and how you can tell the story in camera, not by cutting the film up, not by splicing it and moving it around and different things. You had to shoot your 
two-minute movie by selecting the shots, when to cut to. You shot out of order, obviously, if you needed to do your wide shot and then you're going in for your close-ups and, and to tell the story with different ways. This was an amazing learning experience and it's one of the best things that I got out of Emerson and kind of passing that on to you in a way that it's a, an incredible way to learn. Next question. Hi, Shane. I love your work, your blog, and the inner circle. Thanks for sharing your experience and thoughts with us. I have a question. Hey, first off, you're very welcome. And I love this community and I love all the support that all of you give to and share. I have a question regarding lens choice. I would love to hear what motivates you on lens choices and why you would use a long versus a wide in certain situations. I've watched your YouTube videos showing your lens choice for different shots on Need for Speed. On the male characters, you tended to use a wide for profile in the car shots and then a long lens for the female character for essentially the same profile shot, but then you'd switch it up and go to a long for a male actor. Then you'd use different lenses for dialogue piece between characters. So I would like to know what's your secret sauce, that secret recipe for lens choice. Thanks, Gene. The secret sauce. Okay. Well, each film has its own secret sauce. And once you decide what that secret sauce is going to be, I put together these uh, lens rules of engagement. So a need for speed. We wanted to make Aaron Paul feel very heroic. So we went with slightly wider lenses and pushed in and lower angles on him. One to make him look taller as well as look more heroic. We used a lot of wider lenses uh, in the car close up so we could see as much background as possible, especially in the profiles and even in the front on shots. The profiles are a no brainer when you're doing car work. If you're going 25 miles an hour, it looks like you're going 60 in a profile, but in a head on shot, it doesn't. So what we would do is we would skew the camera slightly off center. So we would get more profile coming out the let's say the driver's side window, as well as the rear window. The rear window always looks slow because it's just stuff that you're going away from. The profile is where you gain all your speed. So by using those wider lenses pushed in close and panned over to the right or panned over to the left if we were dealing with the passenger to give us as much profile action flying by their driver or passenger side window was all about the speed factor. That was kind of the mantra. Obviously, with our girl, we wanted to go with slightly longer lenses with her. I love the 100 millimeter cook. I think it's a, a beautiful lens for faces and for especially women's faces. It kind of flattens them out a little bit and just makes them look stunning. So that was my choice. We used the Cook S4 Primes on Need for Speed. Each film has its own type of rules of engagement and lens choice. I usually kind of fix a style and composition as well as a lens choice to each character. When we did Fathers and Daughters, Russell Crowe, I wanted him center punched as much as possible. And then when he started to have these breakdowns, we would switch to off-center compositions that were definitely askew in some way, like he was way, his face was way over to the left or way over to the right. His 
His daughter, Amanda Seyfried, we wanted her to always be off, never in the center. And the camera movement with her was less grounded. It wasn't handheld. We shot it all on the Movi M10 with the Canon C500. It was settled, but it just had that kind of slight movement that created a wonderful, not grounded, having no foundation. And that's what her character was. She did not have a foundation. Putting together these rules of engagement and selecting a specific style that you're going to go for is very important in each project that you embark on. Depending on the story, like in Badlands, let's take into the Badlands that you'll all see very soon in November, this film liked the wider lens close-ups. The 35mm Leica Sumacrons were absolutely stunning on uh, Sonny, who is our Daniel Wu, intense martial arts assassin, and he looks amazing with that low 35 millimeter. We had Quinn, our character, who is one of these uh, amazing barons, very powerful baron. The 35 mil down low, very heroic, was incredible. We also have this character called the Widow. We use the same lens on her, which 35 millimeter pushed in close is usually not a great lens for a female, but done back enough or cutting her breasts kind of midway across, it looks so good. Or we'd go to a 50 mil on her. Each project and each thing that you create, it needs to be thought through. It needs to be worked out with the director, production design for you to kind of understand what kind of sets you're building, what lenses are going to be the best for these type of sets. I kind of like bigger sets than what's an actuality because I don't like to shoot on 14 millimeter lenses to get the expanse of a room. I like to shoot more on 21 millimeter lenses so you don't have that massive distortion. But then there's sometimes where the distortion is absolutely cool. So then that's when you do shrink your sets and go with 14 and 12 millimeters to capture the room and that type of style. I always go back to, there's a wonderful movie called Amelie that was shot all on wide lenses. That's a great example of how well that can be done to tell a story. Next question. How are you doing, Shane? I have a question regarding on-set monitors and their calibration. As of any independent shows where a DIT would not be available, what would you do use to get a calibrated monitor so that you can use a fairly accurate representation of your exposure and color on set? If big monitors such as a Flanders and Sony are not available, would you ever trust use the small HD OLED series like a DP7 or a 502 to as a reference for you on set exposure and color? Okay, let's take that question. In regards to a small monitor, I am going to be perfectly honest with you. I did need for speed because of the speed that we were moving at, because of the setups that we were doing a day, because of the ability to have 36 some odd cameras on a setup and really only see two or three of them. I exposed that whole movie off of a small HD AC7 monitor. Looking back over this experience, it is not something that I would ever 
do again. And it was a learning curve for me. I mean, it was truly the only option. The DP7 wasn't out. The AC7 OLED had really strong blacks, but I was going on false information given to me by Canon. So I was exposing, underexposing everything based on that monitor and based on the 32 IRE for medium gray. So it was a whole can of whoop ass that beat me up on that movie is going with those smaller monitors. When you can, it is so important that you don't worry about trying to keep everything small. The Flanders Scientific CM250, you can put a battery on if you're worried about a distant location. Anytime you can get a 24-inch monitor in front of your face as a cinematographer, it is a slam dunk. And anytime you can be using false color it's a slam dunk. I found that so many idiosyncrasies, so many color temperature choices that I chose on the smaller monitor was not right. It's such a small monitor and it's so compact that you're looking at this image and it's so small. But when you see it on a 24 inch monitor that most people at home are going to be seeing it and something 24 or larger 60 inch, you need to see the impact of that color on you and what is going to be the audience. This is what I find so many times when you're in DI bays and you're color correcting on a 60 inch television screen, but it's going to be on a 60 foot screen. You got issues there. That's not going to work. You got to at least do it on a 20 foot screen so you can see the impact of your choices, your choice of contrast, your choice of color, how that's going to impact the audience is going to be so different on a 60-inch screen than it is on a 60-foot screen. When you are on set and you are exposing this digital negative, you want to have the biggest image possible in front of you that is within the confines of the physicalities of what you have to do and how fast you have to move. I break this Flanders down to simplicity, man. I got the 24-inch with me wherever I go, and I got a piece of duvetine taped onto the back of it, and I just throw that thing over like I'm a large-format photographer, and I just stick my head in there. And luckily, I got my new progressive aggressive glasses so I can tilt my head up very high and look through the bottom of the damn lens and get the monitors in focus when my head is only about a foot and a half away from them. But that is where it has to be. You got to fight for having those larger monitors so you can really see the impact of what your choices are on the screen, as well as having great lookup tables at your disposal so you can really gauge and find this look. And I've developed a ton for all of you. On the Dragon, there's a wonderful array of lookup tables for you to use, as well as on Need for Speed and Fathers and Daughters that are out there. I'm going to do a whole new batch for Black Magic. And uh, once I get back from vacation, there's a whole slew of cool things that we have cooked up for all of you to share. I have to say, if you're not going to be able to do the 24 inch, then I would go to the Flanders 9 inch as a next pop down. You can still embed LUTs on that. You get the full spectrum of your false color and you get a very accurate monitor that is going to help you expose. But it's 9 inch instead of 7 inch. So it's a little, at least it's 2 inches larger. So if you have to break it down to be that stealth and small, that is what I would say. And there are a 
comparably about the same price and far superior to anything that small HD is kicking out. I'd go always air to Flanders in regards to color and how you expose your negative. Next question. Hi, Shane. First of all, thank you for being such an inspiration. My highest respect to you for sharing such a wealth of knowledge. You are very welcome, and thank you for those wonderful words. And thank you for those wonderful words. This is my very first question as a new member to your inner circle. Awesome. I love this kind of stuff because this is what it's all about. You getting involved. Like I said in the beginning, you got to give back in this kind of stuff. And is and it's just not taking in the content and the articles and all the video and all that stuff and just ingesting it. It's, it's a sharing process in every aspect. And this is a perfect example. This is their first question. And this is huge. And this is why I wanted to really highlight this specific question because there's so many of you out there that I know want to ask questions to me. Just blot it down. Just write it in those podcast question sections. This is what I'm here for. The podcasts, I think, are one of the most powerful tools within the inner circle because it's a one-on-one -on -one connection. And that's what makes the inner circle so amazing, I think. Yes, I created the thing, but looking at what is out there on the internet and what makes us different. And what makes us different is the personal, intimate connection that I have with all of you. And the podcast questions and then me answering them is a perfect example of that. I was a DSLR cinematographer. I started feeling it's it's the great limitations despite of its ergonomic and its size and advantage. I feel ready to move up to a mid-range pro camera, such as a Ursa Mini. Another part of the upgrade is to buy my own set of cine lenses, but since they're not cheap, as we all know, I was considering buying the Canon Cine set. I found great reviews about them. They have a fast aperture of a T15, and since they're an EF mount, they would be compatible natively with the Ursa Mini EF mount, as well as all my DSLR cameras, the GH3, GH4, and 5D. Also, they're almost half the price of 25K for all of them of other more industry standard ones, such as the Cook S4s that are like 45K a lens. I choose them over the CP2 as they're faster lenses mainly. Do you think this is a wise choice? Did you test the Canon Cines before? Would you mind maybe comparing them to other more high-end such as the Cook as maybe the difference won't be worth investing double the price? What would be your advice for the situation in general? Thanks a million, Shane. For your first question, you asked about 20. <laughs> All right, let's dive into the first part of this five-part question. The first question was, what do I think about the Canon Cine set? Okay, I think the Canon Cine set would be perfect for your whole range of cameras that you want to be able to use them with. But all of the Canon Cine lenses are not a 1.5 or a 1.2 or a 1.3. They're, they're kind of all over the map as well. Like the 14 mil is a 3.5. The 135 is a 2.5. It's only the 
24, 35, 50, and 85 that are in that 1, 2, 1, 5 range. Yes, they are a little faster than the Zeiss. I love the Canon look. I think it's a, a look that has an amazing coating that does not flare. I think there is a color mismatch a little bit within those lenses. And I think this is an awesome article and video that we are going to do on the Inner Circle where we compare all these high-end lenses to these lower-cost lenses. I think that is a genius idea. We've been trying to do it, but it's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to test this, the Cook S4s versus the Canon Cinema Primes. And it's like, oh no, we got to test the very cam versus the red dragon to decide what camera I'm going to shoot for Into the Badlands. And it's like, whoosh, move to the back. When you're not just educating and you are out in the field and you are creating and doing feature film projects, and then I'm sharing all that knowledge and experience with all of you, there's a lot of these things that get kicked to the back. But this is something that I I'm going to personally put on to the article ideas for the inner circle and share with all of you as soon as I can, because I think this is an awesome process, not just to compare the cheap lenses with the cheap cheaper lenses with the cheaper lenses, but the high-end lenses with the more inexpensive lenses so you can really see. What I can tell you from experience is it all is about definition and depth in image capture. What I find like the Zeiss and the Canons lack is definition within the lens that the Cook and the Leicas and the Agenus and any lens that's going to be $20,000 or $30,000 a piece obviously is going to be giving you a lot more definition in the highlights as well as the shadow and just definition and sharpness and quality and clarity in general. I saw it right off the bat. I was shooting this Toyota spot and I had a cook outside shooting through the window on a C500, getting reflection and seeing our driver. And then I had a Zeiss CP2 down low, 21 millimeter in like the wheel, passenger wheel well, looking up to him so you could see the steering wheel and him and the ceiling and everything. And my God, the definition between those two pieces of glass was astounding on what I was seeing on the Cook compared to what I was seeing on the Zeiss. So I will share this all with you in the coming months because I think this is a great question, but there's my thought process on that. Next part of this question. I chose them over the CP2s because they were faster. There's like the Leica Sumalux Cs that are a 1.3 compared to the Leica Sumacrons that are a T2. I'll shoot the Sumacrons. I'm not a big person shooting wide open. I just don't understand it. Never would want to light my focus puller into that corner. Because, and I know a lot of you are working with available light and all that kind of stuff, and you have to be a little more stealth and a little one-man bandy, but at the same time, you want people in focus and you want to engage and emotionally connect, and that's not going to happen at a 1-3 a lot of times, because if you're moving around and it just, a lot of stuff is out of focus. So I like to at least give my focus pullers a T2, so that's why I never shoot with super speeds, I'm not not a master prime kind of guy. I don't go to the Cook S5s, which are a 1-3. I'm more of a 2 kind of guy. If a project sends me into that 
really shallow depth of field and people things going in and out of focus. And if that's the world of a character or a flashback or these things to tell the story better, then of course I'm going to be shooting with that stuff. But as like a benchmark, I try to keep my T2 as my uh, range of where I stay at. Did you test the Canon Cine before? I have. I did that for a project. A lot of these projects I do test for, I cannot share with all of you because it's the product of like DreamWorks. And that's where I tested the the, uh, Cine Primes for Need for Speed. So I really can't share that. Like I said, I will do a test with these lenses so you can really see what they're all about. As maybe the difference wouldn't be worth double the price, what would be your advice for this situation in general? So that's kind of the test that I'm going to be doing where I can kind of uh, compare and contrast the really higher end lenses versus the lower inexpensive lenses for all of you to look at. Shane, I was wondering if you could speak on budget solutions for lenses. I've seen an old video where you talked about the Nikon AIS still glasses being a good choice. But with the introduction of the Rokinons Cinema DS lenses that are all matched in color and unified in a gear positioning for focus and aperture, I'm having a hard time picking a set. Thanks. Well, I'm just going to go on record saying that the Rokinons are not a lens that I would ever shoot on, actually. I'm not a big fan of those lenses. I've done a lot of tests on them. They have what I call a sweet spot, which is kind of in the center of the lens, and then everything falls off on the sides. Their definition and character and bokeh, it's a very weird piece of glass that I really have not embraced. The Nikon AI and AIS series, obviously, yes, it has a lot of funkiness in regards to where the gear and the focus and all this stuff is there, but it's a much higher quality piece of glass, even when it's older. This is back when they were made by hand. They were done with love and care and not cut out of computer 3D printers that just slice the glass and pop them in a lens housing and kick them out the door for all of you to enjoy. I would have to say that the Nikon AI and AIS, you're going to be getting, um, you can get a set from an 18 mil all the way up to a 180 for under $2,000. I did a whole blog post on the AIs of which lenses I really like. If you want to go a little higher, I would go with the Leicas, the Leica R's. There's a whole blog post on the Pearl blog that goes into every Leica. I tested every Leica R series and found the best and then purchased several sets of those. So you should check that out as an option. Obviously, this is a higher dollar option. The Leicas are a little are more expensive than the Nikons. I would choose those, the older pieces of glass over this uh, Rokinon series. And I don't know, I'm just... Like I said, not a big fan of those lenses. I feel with any GH3 or GH4, the older glass is only going to benefit that camera system. And I love it on the Canon C300s and C100s. I think the older glass takes that sharpness out of the camera. So it it really shines very bright in regards to uh, the image quality, makes it more filmic. 
Well, that concludes our second July podcast. And again, I apologize for the mix-up. We now have a little better understanding of how to do this. I find anytime you leave it up to me to kind of organize and arrange the questions and how I answer them, I know it's going to be a recipe for disaster. <laughs> that was what happened, but now I've given the control over to somebody else who is going to be managing the questions and make sure that I do not answer the same question twice. So thank you all for listening. And again, thank you all for your support and this amazing community that you all share and help create. Do not forget to submit podcast questions. I cannot wait to answer them and to help you on your journey to becoming an incredible filmmaker. If you're looking to challenge yourself, if you're looking to become a better filmmaker, as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience, go to shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.